The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. Uh, my name is Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer and I am passionate about teaching business professionals like you how to negotiate and be more persuasive in the business world. I don't know if you can tell, but I am super, super, super excited about this episode. So remember uh, in the last episode, I mentioned that a few of my listeners asked me to create a, um, to record myself doing a negotiation. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I have clients. I can't uh, violate a attorney client privilege. So what can I do? What kind of negotiation can I record? And so I thought a little bit and I figured, oh, I could do a, a car negotiation because that's something that we all will need to do at some point in our lives. And it would really give me an opportunity to showcase some uh, basic negotiation skills that could be utilized in other um, business situations. So you will notice that I didn't have an episode last week. And it's because in my last episode, I promised you that the next episode would be the car negotiation uh, podcast. And so I started working on it. And then I started working on it more and more and more and it just evolved into something completely different so what I had in mind was I was going to do a just a quick summary on what you could do for a car negotiation and then do the uh, recording and that was going to be it but as I started to get into it I realized that that wouldn't really do you much of a of a service because you need a lot more um, in-depth exp explanation to really understand what's going on here so this has now turned into a three-part series. And so the first part is going to be uh, negotiation, uh, preparation, and strategy. And in the second part, we're going to talk about tactics. And then in part three, we'll have the audio of the actual recorded negotiation with the dealership. And in the uh, tactics episode, I'm going to have my friend um, Kyle Reset. He, um, his father owned a dealership. And so he has a lot of experience in the car buying world. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of my uh, negotiation tactics, and then I'm going to run it by him, and he'll give us some more. So yeah, this is this is going to be thorough, and I, I genuinely believe that when this is all said and done, it is going to be the most thorough car negotiation free resource online. Um, this it is that good. Like the blog is at this point nine pages. And I haven't even gotten to part two yet. So let's just jump right into this because I don't want this to be too long. So negotiation is an art. It's not a science. So there's not really a one plus one equals two type of uh, methodology for negotiation. But what I want to do is really systematize the process as much as possible so you can leave with an actionable step-by-step -step guide in how to conduct your own negotiations. And with that, it is my pleasure to introduce our newest freebie. It is a car negotiation guide. So if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash car, again, that's AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash C-A-R. 
um, you will find a car negotiation guide and it'll help you go through the strategy and preparation necessary to have a successful car negotiation. And like I said before, I just want to reiterate this point. Even if you're not buying a car, still listen because this is not so much about how to negotiate for a car. It's it's more about how to understand negotiation with this medium of a car negotiation as the uh, the tool that we're using to, to learn. So don't so- focus too much on the fact that it's a car. Just think about the basic negotiation principles that we can extract from this experience. So like I said, part one will be negotiation preparation strategy. Part two will be tactics. And I want to say this too, because I know some people are going to be asking, what's the difference between strategy and tactics? So strategy uh, deals with the preparation. That's the brainstorming portion and figuring out all of the actors and the context and understanding the entire negotiation scenario that we're dealing with. The tactics of the negotiation are comprised of your actual behavior at the negotiating table. So if you read this blog, you'll see a, a bunch of profound quotes spattered throughout the the blog. And so those are actually my quotes. I made them up. I think they're pretty good, um, at least entertaining. So let's jump into a quote about negotiation success when it comes to preparation. Success is achieved before the day of competition through diligent preparation, comprehensive investigation, and strategy creation. And I really want to make this point clear that the the preparation part of the negotiation is without a doubt the most important step in the process. And so when you think about it, I'm going to put my uh, psychology nerd hat back on for a second. Um, Negotiation is a really stressful event. And so when you're stressed, your body produces a stress hormone called cortisol. Cortisol makes it difficult to think clearly. And because of this, in negotiations when we need to be incredibly clear-minded, we're poisoned by a stress hormone that prevents us from thinking clearly. And so this is why, in the strategy portion, it's important for us to pre-think as much of the negotiation as possible. One of my favorite sayings is, competence breeds confidence. And you will hear me say this throughout this podcast and other podcasts in the future. Um, because it's it's just true. The more you think about it, the truer that, that statement becomes. So you're able to perform at a much higher level when you have a thorough understanding of all of the relevant information. So when I personally prepare for a negotiation, no matter how seemingly insignificant the negotiation might be, my goal is to gather considerably more information than is necessary. So I typically only utilize, let's say, approximately 30% of the information that I've gathered in the actual negotiation, but I have that other 70% in the background, in the back of my mind, throughout the conversation, um, ready to go if necessary. The more information you have, the better positioned you are to make competent statements and ask relevant questions. So go into every negotiation with the legitimate confidence that you know as much as possible on the subject and the requisite humility to learn more from the other side through listening. That's another Kwame quote. When you get up early, you come up with you come up with gold before 5 a.m. So before the negotiation, I try to gather as much information as possible on the person with whom I'm negotiating and the situational context. So in your preparation, answer the following questions. Question number one, with whom are you negotiating? So simply knowing the person's name is not enough. Here's my rule of thumb. Do as much research on them as you would if you were trying to date them. Now that takes it to a new level. 
So look at their LinkedIn profile, their social media pages, business reviews, local court filings, and conduct an extensive Google search. So articles that they've written and interviews that they've given are a goldmine of useful information because they provide you with an opportunity to hear or, in the case of an article, read their voice. And so this is powerful because people have go-to words that they, and go-to words and phrasings that, that they use often that carry a lot of weight. So for me, as I listen to myself, um, people always joke around that I I say the word awesome and phenomenal <laughs> way too much. And now I've given away my tell, my, my go-to words, so you're going to be listening to for it all the time. But I also like to say key in on something. So if I hear somebody saying those types of words, parroting that back to me, I'm going to think that they're really smart because, like most people, we I have a self-serving bias. And so people think that they are really smart. And if you sound like them, they're going to think you're really smart too. So it's a version of, um, of mirroring, auditory mirroring, in order to build a quick rapport. So here's a good example of the importance of doing research on people. So Earlier this week, or actually now it's, it's last week, I was preparing for a negotiation on behalf of one of my clients. So deep down in the Google results, I found this person's name associated with criminal activity. Then I searched the, the local court records and found that he had approximately 15 or so interactions with the law over the past 15 years. And so these were offenses um, stemming from... Uh, ranging from menacing to burglary, and you know I'm not a I'm not a criminal lawyer. I'm a business lawyer, so that means my client was doing business with this person who they didn't know was a criminal. So that gave me pause, obviously, uh, and so I also had the opportunity to speak to someone who had um, business dealings with him in the past, and he had similarly unflattering things to say about this person. So needless to say, this completely changed my approach to the negotiation. So. How did it change my strategy? What did I do? So I realized that if I were to talk to this person, I would be talking to the wrong person. Any conversation with this person would have been ultimately unproductive. And so this is this is something I want to say, and it goes to the point that negotiation is an art, not a science. If it was a science, I could try and you know pour the right amounts of persuasion in there to, to unlock the code for him. But some people are just unpersuadable, and you just you have to try your best. Or when you have uh, the proper research behind you, you can know not to try at all. Because for me, I'm not negotiating for myself. I'm negotiating for my client. And my, my time is expensive. So now I know not to waste my, client, my time and my client's money on trying to negotiate with this person. So what did I do? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. 
Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I decided to write a harshly worded demand letter that would scare him into getting an attorney. And then I could negotiate with his attorney instead of dealing directly with him. And so, yeah, sometimes you have to figure out in your negotiation if you're talking to the right person. And doing that research beforehand is going to be crucial when it comes to making that determination. So, you might be asking, Kwame, aren't we here to talk about cars? And yes, we are. So back to the car negotiation. Let's, let's bring it back home. So when you're negotiating for your car, you need to take the time to research the dealer and, if at all possible, the specific salesperson with whom you're going to negotiate. So I would suggest searching for reviews of specific salespeople on staff at the, at the dealership. So see if you can get reviews of the individual salespeople and choose with whom you'd like to negotiate beforehand. So find a person with the best reviews and go negotiate with them. If you can't find this info, ask to speak with the most experienced salesperson or the friendliest salesperson uh, when you call the dealership. Um, and so you have to think of negotiation like a dance. It doesn't matter how good of a dancer you are. If you are stuck with a bad partner, you both look bad when you when you dance. So you want to make sure you get a good partner. So don't be intimidated with pe- by people who have a lot of negotiating experience. That's actually a good thing. So seek those people out if you have a chance. Okay, so preparation question number two. What are the numbers? And so you'll remember um, Anthony Lawley, our guest from episode nine, one time he said, you can be bad at negotiating, but you're not allowed to be bad at math. And it's so, it's so simple, but so profound, because a lot of this comes down to simple math. So in order to be a good negotiator, you have to have a firm grasp on the numbers. And so in this portion, answering this question, we're going to identify the most important numbers when it comes to this car negotiation. So the first thing we need to know is the market. We need to look at the dealer's competitors and see how the vehicle is priced at other locations. So this is helpful because it gives us an idea of what kind of prices we can actually expect in the market and with whom this particular dealer is competing. So in our case, I decided that we're going to go to go with a, a pretty standard car, a 2017 Ford Explorer Limited with a V6 and four-wheel drive. So this car is listed at, at this particular dealership at $47,413. And here are the listings of the same car at other Ford dealerships in the area. So $43,323, and $45,698. Um, so our, our Ford uh, Explorer is a little bit higher, a little bit above market. Now we want to look at the fair market value. So first we were looking at the market value, but we want to look at the fair market value. So one of the most valuable pieces of information you can gather is the fair market value of whatever it is you're trying to buy. So the fair market value comes from objectivity. So there's no opinion in it. Utilizing the fair market value makes your arguments more persuasive because it's not really you that's saying it should cost this much. It's a neutral, unbiased third party. So in the world of cars, the Kelly Blue Book is the gold standard. So according to their website, the car should cost between $42,096, sorry, $42,096 and 
$483 in this area. So as you can see, the dealerships in the area have built in a little bit of fluff into their price because that's significantly lower, um, about four, approximately $4,000 lower than the list price for this Ford Explorer here. So you'll remember in episode four of the podcast called The Secret Competitive Edge for Entrepreneurs, I encouraged you to always try to negotiate deals on purchases because when it comes to pricing, after you factor in labor and overhead and those type of things, to a certain extent, people just make up numbers. It's like, how much would I like my margin to be? I don't know, 17%? Let's go with that. And... Um, we just go with that as the as the buyer, but we don't need to. There's fluff that we can play with in these numbers. So when you have an understanding of the fair market value and the prices of local competitors, you can start to save yourself money by chipping away at this fluff. So the third thing we need to look at when we're talking about the numbers is trying to figure out the, the ultimate cost to the dealer. So understanding the actual cost of the dealer will help us get a better, a better idea of how low the dealer is willing to go. So there are two, t two key terms, see there's the word key again, that I, I want to bring to your attention here. The first one is the manufacturer's suggested retail price, um, better known as the MSRP. So according to the Kelly Blue, Blue Book, the MSRP is actually said by the manufacturer and means just what it implies, a suggested retail price. And by law, the price is required to be displayed on every vehicle sold in America. And so one of the most important skills of good negotiators is the ability to hone in on certain key words. Wow, I said it again. <laughs> okay, so the key word here is suggested. Um, so dealers will try to get you to believe that the MSRP is the actual price that they paid for the car. And so they'll make it seem like dropping the price at or below the MSRP actually creates a situation where they lose money and they're doing you such a big favor because you're just that special to them. But do not be fooled. This is not the case. So with that in mind, how do we actually estimate the price at which the dealer bought the car and their real margins? In order to do this, we need to find the invoice price. So again, according to Kelly Blue Book, the invoice price is the dealer's cost for the vehicle, and it doesn't include any of the dealer's costs for advertising, selling, preparing, displaying, or financing the vehicle. So for obvious reasons, this is an invaluable piece of information. But there's a lot more to the number story than this. Even if we can figure out what the exact price that the dealer paid for this car, the invoice price, there's still more numbers that we need to know. So let's move on to manufacturer's incentives. And let me tell you this too, like I didn't know most of this stuff before really getting into um, this, this specific podcast episode. So that's why one of the main reasons I'm so excited about this is because I'm learning alongside of you. And so I was um, taking this negotiation scenario of the car buying, the car negotiation scenario, and running it through my typical negotiation analysis, and it just caused me to ask more and more and more questions, which forced me to do more and more and more research. And that's why this, this podcast, um, this, this little mini-series on the car negotiation has expanded to what it is right now. But I think it provides a really good example of what... Um, a negotiator should do before each of their negotiations 
this is the type of in-depth research that I would typically do before my personal negotiations or my negotiations for clients or on, on the consulting side for the American Negotiation Institute, um, the types of analyses I go through with my clients on that end too. It's, it is painstakingly precise, but it pays dividends in the end. So moving on, yes, back to the car negotiation. Manufacturer's incentives, the next list of numbers that we need to know. So in some cases, if a dealership hits certain numbers, it'll get incentives from manufacturers. So for example, if a dealership sells five Ford Explorers in a month, it earns $1,000 in bonuses for each Explorer sold that month. So in this example, if the dealer gives you $1,000 off the invoice price, he or she wins overall because they would also make the additional $1,000 on all of the other Explorers they sold during the month. And so that's just an example of what it could look like. I don't know the exact numbers per dealership, obviously, but just know that even if a dealer ultimately it looks like they lose on on the car, if they sell it for a loss, if it hurts if it hits certain numbers, if it reaches certain sales quotas for them, the dealership could ultimately still win. So we can assume that most people won't be as savvy as you, my friend, when it comes to negotiating the car prices. So the majority of people will actually end up paying, not surprisingly, at or above, most likely above, MSRP for their car. So with considering that, with these incentives, it allows the dealer to win big, even if it looks like they're losing on a deal with you. So going deeper into these numbers, we also have to consider personal incentives. So one of the most important parts of a negotiation analysis is an investigation of all of the parties at play. So it's easy to overlook the total amount of interested parties in a transaction. So I'm going to list the key players. Again, there's key. I'm going to drive myself crazy now. Um, the, here are the key players in this negotiation. So obviously there's you, there's the car dealership, there's the car dealership's local competition, there's the manufacturer, and there are the individual salespeople. So I want to take a moment and highlight the last of these three parties, the salesperson. So people often make the mistake of considering the dealership and the salesperson as effectively one unit. However, when you take the time to really, really, really think about it, they are two distinct players in the car selling game. So here's an example of how this comes into play. So salespeople often have specific sales goals that they need to hit. Again, let's focus in on the keywords here in the previous sentence. Sales goals. So sales are very different from margins. So sales deal with the amount and the quantity of product going out the door, while the margins deal with the amount of profit on each product sale. The dealership as a whole is concerned about the margins, but the individual salespeople are more concerned about getting sales so they can meet their sales goals and bring home a bonus. So what does that mean for you? It means that the salesperson may be more willing to eat into their margins if they have to hit a sales quota. So these sales quotas are often measured at the end of the month or the end of the year. So this means that you will probably have more leverage in your car negotiation if you negotiate towards the end of the month or the end of the year. And so this is a really important part that uh, a really important point here because it makes you realize that leverage is relative. So 
simply by waiting to a, for a better time, you'll have more leverage in a negotiation. So you always need to take the time to analyze who has the leverage and why and see what kind of things you can do to shift the leverage in your favor to uh, gain an advantage in the negotiation. And now here's the last um, number that you need to consider. So there is interest paid by the dealership. So here's a fun fact. Dealerships don't typically own the cars that they're selling you. The car that you buy is most likely owned by a bank or a financing company. So why is that? So dealerships actually buy cars in a similar fashion to you and me. So they use loans. So when a car is sold, the dealer uses those funds to pay off the loan. So as with any loan, the dealerships have to pay interest on these loans. So the longer the car is on the lot, the higher the interest payments. And so these interest payments could be approximately $300 per month. It varies, obviously, by the depending on the car. But let's say for the sake of example, um, between $150 and uh, $300 per month. So dealers typically want to sell the car within 45 days. That's their sweet spot. The longer the car sits on the lot, the more pain the dealer feels. And in order to alleviate that pain, they need to sell the car. And so that's when you come in. So if a car hasn't been sold close to the three-month mark, the dealer is going, to ha- is going to get a little bit antsy. So not only are her interest payments going to be higher, the car is also taking up valuable lot space that could be used to sell more cars. So not surprisingly, the length of the time the car spends on the lot is not well advertised. They don't want you to know that number. So how do we figure this out? So there are two easy ways. You can one check the paperwork. So if you go to the dealership and look at the dates on the car's paperwork, you can reasonably assume that the car arrived on the lot around that time. So look for the dates when you get, if you go to the dealership in person, look at the dates to see uh, when the car arrived. And then you can also check the Carfax report. So this report shows when the car was listed for sales. A lot of a lot of dealerships will give this to you for free. If not, you can pay, I think, uh, $40 or so to get it online. Did I do that? No, because I want to keep my $40. And because I think it gives me an opportunity to, um, to teach you another skill. In any negotiation, there's going to be some information that you or the other party doesn't want to share. And so your goal is to formulate questions that can get to those answers creatively. So in this uh, recorded negotiation, I'm going to try and come up with some questions that can get the dealer to share that information with me, even though it is against his or her best interest. So it'll be kind of like a game. And um, we'll go over this a little bit more when it comes to tactics in the next episode. And now we come to my favorite part of negotiations figuring out the questions that you want to ask. So in this stage of negotiation preparation, you want to ask yourself this question, what don't I know and what do I want to know? So here's another Kwame quote for you. The best negotiators ask the best questions. So let me ask you a question. Would you rather have your foot on the gas or brake pedal or would you rather have your hand on the steering wheel? Since we're talking about cars, let's let's stick with a car metaphor here. So for me, I'll give you some time. Okay, I'm so excited. I love this part. So for me, I'd rather have my hand on the steering wheel. So why is that? I'd rather have my hand on the steering wheel because that means I'm controlling where the car is going while the other person can determine the speed. So 
How do we put our hands in the proverbial steering wheel in a negotiation? We do this by asking questions. So, from, in my opinion, the most powerful tool in, in negotiations is the open-ended question or its cousin, the open-ended statement. So an open-ended question is a question that starts with who, what, where, when, why, or how. So these questions are powerful because their responses require elaboration. Open-ended statements operate on, in the same way, but they don't end in question marks. So an example would be, tell me more about X, something like that. So it's understood that it is, um, uh, it, it's meant to get information from them, even though it doesn't end in a question mark. So the beauty of open-ended questions and open-ended statements is the fact that you will be able to learn significantly more from these responses than you would from the abbreviated responses you'd get from closed-ended questions. So how do we figure out what we need to ask? You need to do a review of all of the information you currently know and identify your gaps in knowledge. And that's where you're going to need to ask your questions. Now let's talk about closed-ended questions. So closed-ended questions can be answered with a simple yes or no. So those kinds of questions are ineffective when it comes to getting substantial information because, like I said before, the responses are very abbreviated. However, there are three instances where closed-ended questions will have value. So the first instance when you could use a closed-ended question. Closed-ended questions are useful as a lie detector test. So you, to do this, you ask a question to which you already know the answer. This gives you an opportunity to see if the person is going to be truthful. This is handy if you're trying to determine whether or not you can trust somebody. The second time you would want to use a closed-ended question would be in a scenario where, where you want to bring somebody down a very specific, almost rigid, logical path to a logical conclusion that is in your favor. So here's an example in a car negotiation. If you want to make the point that the car dealer should lower the price because one, the market is slow, two, their price is high relative to the rest of the competitors, and three, because the salesperson needs the sale to make the quota, you could ask the following set of closed-ended questions. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that the market was slow. Is that right? Compared to the other dealers in the area, your price is higher, right? Do you have a specific quota that you would like to meet this month? Would making the sale help you make that quota? Were you there the night of the 11th? Did you see her murdered? You know, those are the kind of... <laughs> that's, that's essentially what we're doing. This is a cross-examination. People don't like being cross-examined. And it's really transparent. Uh, what uh, your, your goals here are really transparent. It's pretty obvious. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to answer it this way. And so what, what does the person feel? They feel controlled. They feel manipulated. And really, you are just daring them to disagree with you. Not because they actually disagree with you, but because disagreeing with you feels safe. And you never want to make somebody feel uncomfortable in a negotiation. That's, that's not your goal. So even if you want to use this technique to kind of drag somebody down a logical path, you're, you're going to run into problems because people don't like feeling manipulated. So remember, humans are feeling machines that think, not thinking machines that feel. And so when you have the feelings messed up, their thinking is going to be messed up as well. So when you have the urge to use closed-ended questions in this way, just a word of warning. 
typically it doesn't go over the right way. But let's move on to number three, the third scenario when closed-ended questions could be effective. And this is in, in, it's similar, but a little bit different. So a more effective way to use closed-ended questions is by using a method called the yes set. So this is where you ask a series of three non-threatening, I repeat, non-threatening closed-ended questions formulated with the goal of getting them to say yes. And this culminates in the last question, the fourth question, which is what you are really interested in. So here's an example. You, you're talking to the salesperson again. Do you like this particular model of the car? Do you think it fits my needs? Do you think I should buy it today? Can you do 39,900? So the goal with this technique is to generate positive persuasive momentum. So you get them into the brief habit of saying yes to whatever it is that you're saying, and they'll feel more compelled to say yes for the fourth thing. So this is similar to the more aggressive cross-examination style of questioning with one key difference. The lead-up questions are non-threatening, which makes the person feel safe answering affirmatively. So let's circle back to open-ended questions for a moment. So open-ended questions allow you to control the conversation with the other party feeling like they are actually the ones in control. So how does this happen? People typically feel protected from your power to persuade if they are talking. However, this couldn't be further from the truth because your main goal, one of your main goals in a negotiation should be to get the other person to feel comfortable and to get them to talk. When I negotiate, my goal is to keep the breakdown of communication approximately 70-30 in their favor. So I want to be listening 70% of the time and talking 30% of the time. So when, they're, when, when I have this breakdown, I know three things are happening. Number one, I'm asking good questions. Number two, I'm getting more information from them than they are from me, which gives me more power relative to them. And number three... I'm controlling the direction of the conversation. And so in this portion of the preparation, you should write down an, an exhaustive list of all of the questions that you want to ask during the negotiation. And most likely, you'll only have to use a fraction of these questions, but you want to have them at the ready if necessary. And I'll tell you, this is, for me, this is one of the most important parts of my negotiation preparation. If, if I do nothing else in my entire negotiation analysis... I will do this because it gives me the control that I like. And one last note on asking great questions. The gap between a deal and no deal and the gap between establishing rapport and not establishing rapport is the same. And that gap is trust. In in that gap is trust. And so your goal is to try and create as much as much trust as possible. And so when you listen intently, and then demonstrate to them that you have listened intently by repeating what they said back to them, it builds trust. And it's one of the easiest ways to build trust in a conversation. And so when you learn these types of communication skills, you can't help but have some of it spill into your everyday life. So when I'm networking or meeting new people, um, I utilize these listening skills, not because I'm trying to persuade them or anything, but now this is just how I communicate. And I can't tell you how many times people have had a conversation with me and I've heard, oh, I, 
I can't believe I told you that, or I've, I've never told anybody this before, or between you and me, this is my uber secret business idea for next year. Don't tell anybody. And you know, these, these aren't clients, so I don't have attorney client privilege. These are just me. This is just me talking to people as, as new friends. And sometimes it might be the first time I'm meeting them and they feel comfortable enough to share this information with me because throughout the entire conversation, I've been listening to them and proving that I listen to them. And when you listen to somebody, it shows that you care. And when people believe that you care, it creates trust. Okay, and now we are down to the last question you should ask yourself in your negotiation preparation. How can I maximize value? And let's start this section with a Kwame quote. So creativity is the key to maximizing value. So great negotiators look beyond the obvious to find ways to maximize value for both parties. So not only for themselves, but for both parties. And and this is something that you'll hear throughout this podcast. And you'll hear other guests come in and, and reiterate it too. So you know it's not just me saying this. Generosity is the key to negotiation. A lot of times people feel awkward in negotiations um, because they feel like they're being greedy. Or they feel like they need to be greedy in order to do it well. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So Great negotiators are not only creative, but they're also generous. This is what people mean by expanding expanding the pie. You want to try and think outside of the box and figure out what other things could be of value to me and the person with whom I'm negotiating. This is one of the key differences between average negotiators and great negotiators, because average negotiators spend their time looking at the table and figuring out how they can get as much of what is on the table as possible. While great negotiators say, okay, I see what's on the table. I'm going to figure out how to put more on it. And then I'm going to work with the other side to divide this equitably. So being creative has the obvious benefit of giving yourself a better chance of getting more of what you want. But it also has the strategic benefit of creating more options and bargaining chips to use in the negotiation. So in this section, we obviously want to do two main things. First, we want to get a car. And second, we want to get the car at the lowest price possible. So what else could confer value in this situation? We could talk about the length of the warranty. We can talk about upgrades. Um, Is there going to be a car wash? Are there going to be repairs? Even something as simple as, are we going to leave your car dealership logo on the car? Because that's free advertisement for for them. And so you can use that as a bargaining chip, too. You want to try and think outside the box and um, figure out what could be valuable to them. And so one thing you could even do is, let's say you're uh, an influencer in your community and you have a lot of followers on social media and you can prove it. So maybe you say, hey, after we culminate this in a deal, uh, we could take a selfie together and I post it to my friends and say, hey, I'm going to come to John Doe's car dealership every time now because I know he'll treat me fairly. And that's organic marketing that is invaluable for the dealership. And maybe they'd be willing to knock something off for that free advertising. So just try and think outside the box and figure out what you can do to be of value to the other person and what things are of value to you. The interesting thing about this particular negotiation, the car negotiation scenario, uh, that makes it different from most of our negotiation is that the length of time that you're going to have a relationship with this dealership or this particular salesperson is, is very limited. And so you always want to consider 
the status of the relationship and how long term the relationship is. So in a typical negotiation, you you don't want to try and get everything that you want. And you might say, oh my gosh, that is so counterintuitive. And it is <laughs> because you think the, the goal of negotiation obviously is to get as much as possible. And it is to a certain extent. But think about it. Think about it from their perspective. Let's say you're negotiating with me and you know last time we negotiated, I took everything, everything that I could. And now, now what is your mindset? It's like, oh man, here comes that Kwame kid. He's going to take all my stuff and then come back for more. You know, it, it, the relationship is, is fractured. And I can even think of um, one time I had one of my friends who does um, computer repair. And he, he quoted me a price that was well below market. Well below market. And I, I, told, I paid him more than what he asked for. And why is that? Because there's value in the relationship. Not so much in this case. So in this case, you kind of want to try and get as much as possible. And so this is one of those few scenarios where I'm like, hey, go out and get it all. And um, that's rare, but you have to always consider the relationship. This relationship, I don't, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but it, it will not matter in the future. So always treat people with respect and whatnot, but don't be afraid in a car sale negotiation to get as much as, as you can. So, all right. So we are at the end now. So these are my final thoughts. Um, because I'm at the end of my notes and because my voice hurts because I've been talking for about 40 minutes straight. Um, so if you get nothing else from this entire car negotiation series, please get this. Preparation is undoubtedly the most important part of any negotiation. And if you take the time to prepare yourself, you'll have the upper hand in the negotiation. And the beautiful thing about this is that preparation is a choice. You have complete control of your ability to prepare. So either you take the time to do it, or you don't. The ball's in your court. So people are often concerned about whether or not the other side will treat them fairly in a negotiation. And in my opinion, whether or not somebody treats you fairly depends completely on you. So how is that? In negotiations, people will only attempt to take advantage of you if they believe that they can successfully take advantage of you. So when you come to the negotiation fully prepared and you can demonstrate to the other side that you did their research, they won't even try to take advantage of you because they know that they can't. And that, my friends, is powerful. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as me. I. I don't know if you could tell, I, I was super geeked about this. I actually did this whole recording standing. I have so much energy about this. So yeah, I'm glad you, I'm, thank you to um, the people who asked me to do this because this was a, a fun project and it continues. And um, I'm really excited to see where this goes. And uh, honestly, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure here because now I need to, I need to perform in front of all of you. And to those of you who are concerned about the legality of recording somebody, um, of course, as a lawyer, I looked into this, and Ohio is a single-party consent state. And so what that means is that somebody can record another person if they are part of the conversation. You cannot record somebody if you're not part of the conversation. So don't worry, we're good, and we are going to make sure to protect the confidentiality of the particular dealership we deal with, and we'll... Uh, will um, 
bleep out the names and everything. So no worries there. No harm, no foul. So get excited. I'm excited. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want that free um, negotiation, car negotiation analysis, um, go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash car. So AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash C-A-R. And I'm going to put the, the link to that in the description here. And so if you know anybody who is going to buy a car, or if you have a friend with a junky car who needs to buy a car, <laughs> let them know about this podcast and um, share this information with them. Spread the love. That helps me. That helps them. And um, it helps you because they look at you in a good light. So thanks again for listening. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next one. I'll catch you later.